When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In 1815, people in Europe finally managed to band together to capture the bad boy Napoleon and exile him to the island of San Helena. Speaking of Ireland, little did they know that some 12,000 kilometers away in Indonesia, Mount Tambora's volcanic eruption had killed thousands of people. It wasn't until the following summer that dust arrived to cover the European sky, giving 1816 the nickname The Year Without Summer. Temperatures plummeted, crops failed, and people felt miserable in the cold. Near Lake Geneva, the literary circle of British dandies, Lord Byron, Percy Shelley, and Mary Shelley were shivering as they remained indoors. They would look at the dark sky thinking they had escaped the overcast English sky, but it was even worse in Switzerland. To compound that, hungry people were rioting in big cities causing chaos all over Europe. Conspiracy theories were rife. What has caused this terrible weather? Global cooling? The Romantics blamed urbanization and industrialization. In other words, the rational science thinking the horrible weather had something to do with some mad scientist in his lab creating something terrible. It wasn't a virus but a monster of some sort. For the Romantics, the future looked bleak. The three British literary giants in Switzerland were bored, so they challenged each other to write some gothic ghost stories. Mary Shelley was a still teenager, so she dreaded this challenge. Lord Byron, one of the most famous poets of his age, wrote a story that would become the first tale in the vampire genre. Days went by and Mary still had nothing to show. After many anxious days, she finally managed to write something. Little did she know that this story would become a phenomena, even bigger than Mount Tambora. Mary didn't write about nature destroying us, but man's obsession to create. Published in 1818, Frankenstein by Mary Shelley is considered the first science fiction novel about a young scientist who creates a monster. Mary Shelley was 18 and finished it when she was 20, which is incredible. She was pushed against the wall by her husband and Byron, so it's good to feel uncomfortable sometimes, because it can push you to do something incredible. Her inspiration for the title might have come from the Frankenstein castle in Germany, which she visited in 1815 where she also learned a story about an alchemist who some 200 years prior had done all sorts of crazy experiments. Also at the time, galvanism and occult practices were widely known to her, which became the main premise of the novel, a mad scientist creating a monster. But the main inspiration might have come from her own life, specifically her own birth. Mary Shelley was the daughter of Mary Wollstonecraft, considered the first feminist philosopher advocating for the rights of women and female freedom through education. The fact that Mary has the same name as her mother tells us about a tragic twist. Mary Wollstonecraft died soon after giving birth to her daughter Mary Shelley. 
Whether consciously or subconsciously, perhaps the guilt of losing her mother as a result of being born might have influenced in making guilt as the main theme in the novel. Okay, it's time I tell you what the story is here. Summary Frankenstein has the modern Prometheus as its subtitle, referring to the Greek titan who created humans and taught them how to hunt and kill animals, which was significant for the vegetarian Mary Shelley and her husband Percy Shelley. Prometheus made humans into carnivores, therefore violence and destruction came as a result. However, Prometheus was punished by the Greek god Zeus for stealing fire from him and giving it to humans. As a punishment, he was exiled to the Caucasus where Prometheus would remain forever. So Mary Shelley's scientist is a modern Prometheus who creates a monster. The novel has three main characters, so each narrates part of the novel. One of the main criticisms leveled at Mary Shelley is that all three narrators speak alike. In other words, you could say she is too young and inexperienced a novelist at this stage to give each narrator a different voice. The novel is not stylistically beautiful, however it's philosophically and psychologically rich and profound. The first narrator, Captain Robert Walton, narrates the frame story, the beginning and end. The middle sections are narrated by other two main characters, the scientist and the monster. Captain Walton is on his way to the North Pole for a scientific expedition. But on his way there, he first meets Victor Frankenstein, the scientist who created the monster. But later on, he also meets the monster itself. I should point out that Frankenstein is not the monster, but the scientist who created the monster. Frankenstein's in German means Stone of the Franks. The Franks were a group of Germanic people who have given us the name of France, the country, and Frankfurt, the city. In fact, in the Muslim world, Europe or the West is generally referred to as Frank, and white people as Frangi, which means from the land of the Franks. So Frankenstein might have a double meaning in the Muslim world or the Europeans' former colonies. The monster himself remains unnamed, but he's often called some negative names like the devil, monster, fiend, or even an insect. Incidentally, Franz Kafka, instead of creating a monster, turns an ordinary man into an insect and the metamorphosis. So saying that humans didn't have to create monsters, we are becoming one. A man who cannot create or provide for his family is a useless insect. So our first narrator, Captain Walton, a failed writer, is seeking a new purpose to push the boundaries of science through exploration, which was popular among the ambitious Europeans at the time. Victor Frankenstein, also in his scientific pursuit and acclaim, creates a new creature who turns into a monster. The monster itself, being the only one of its kind, is feeling lonely, isolated, and starts feeling resentful towards her creator, and takes matters into his own hands with disastrous consequences. First we meet Walton, who tells the story through correspondence with his sister. As he and his crew push on towards the North Pole, they notice some gigantic man pulling a sled. Bigfoot or Yeti? Who knows? But later they come across a man on the verge of death. They rescue him and once he recovers, he introduces himself as Victor Frankenstein. Here we have two men, Walton and Frankenstein, both in pursuit of furthering science and both very much obsessed and doing something great. But who is Victor Frankenstein? He tells his story. This is a 19th century novel, so it begins the tale from his childhood. Everything begins at childhood, as Freud said. 
Mr. Victor Frankenstein was born in Italy into a wealthy Swiss family. From a young age, he's interested in alchemy, but soon realized that things have changed. We are in 18th century, the age of reason, so science has replaced the old school alchemy. He grows up to attend a German university where he excels in science, especially chemistry. Instead of using his chemical knowledge to make drugs to get rich, like in the TV show Breaking Bad, he is far more ambitious than that. He develops a new technique to create life. How? Let's talk about the actual science at the time. In the 1780s, while dissecting frogs, Luigi Galvani, an Italian scientist, understood that living muscles work with electrical currents. In other words, through electrical current, one could revive a dead muscle. That's why chickens and frogs can move even after their heads are separated from the body. His name Galvani became the origin of Galvanism, a study of electricity in living beings. So Victor Frankenstein, a young scientist, understands that with the help of electricity, he can reanimate a creature made up of body parts from dead corpses. So where in 18th century, every man wants to make a name for himself by pushing the boundaries of science. Creating life is the ultimate goal of a man. Nature has gifted only women to create life. Now, with the help of science, men can also do that. But first thing first, how can he actually create life? Well, he sources his body parts from dead people. Then he patches them together like a sculptor. It's a delicate business, so he decides to make it tall as it would be easier to work with. Back then, precision tools were rare, so he makes his creature 2.4 meter long, as it's easier to work with. Today in Geneva, you can find the statue of monster. Also important to know that Victor was born in Italy, so aesthetics is very important for him. After all, Michelangelo was an Italian who sculpted the statue of David, the most beautiful in the world. Victor wants his creature to be as beautiful, perhaps like the Renaissance artist. He spends hours, days, weeks and years constructing his baby, bit by bit, piece by piece. It took evolution almost 10 million years to turn a chimp-like animal into a human, but it took Dr. Frankenstein only two years to turn dead human body parts into a monster. Again, German science, eh? His dedication, painstaking attention to detail and his hard work pay off. He puts the last touches and then turns on the electric switch to animate his baby. Ta-da! Oh no! The creature is so hideous that Victor flees his lab like the roadrunner. Yellow skin, translucent blood vessels, watery eyes. This is not beautiful. Science cannot create beauty like art does. A horror movie is playing right in front of him. He's so terrified of his own creation that he starts wandering the streets of Switzerland. Later, he returns home, tiptoeing into his lab, only to learn that the monster has vanished. The experience has been so traumatic that Mr. Frankenstein develops fever, delirium, well, Dostoevsky's Raskolnikov all over. But he's lucky, he has a friend who looks after him while he's recovering. But where's the monster? Nobody knows. The baby's out there somewhere. To make matters worse, Victor gets the news that his brother is murdered in Geneva. He panics and travels to Geneva where he comes face to face with his own creation. The monster is at the crime scene. He puts the two and two together. Yes, it's definitely the monster who killed his brother. But thinking nobody would believe him if he told them, so he keeps his lips sealed. Someone has to be responsible for the murder. Unfortunately, the prosecutors charge the nanny. The Swiss justice system is very swift. 
she is convicted and executed. But the story doesn't end there. Instead of going to the police telling them about the monster, Victor Frankenstein's guilt drives him towards the mountains, the Swiss Alps. You could say that we humans are proud creatures. We don't put our hands up and take the blame. Instead, we run away. Mountains are the best places to get away from it all. Who knows how many scientists screwed things up instead of coming up and telling the world they did everything to cover it up. Who knows? Hiking is the best way to cope with failure, guilt and loss. While hiking in the beautiful Swiss Alps, Mr. Frankenstein thought he was getting away from it all, but instead he comes face to face with his own baby. The monster is also hiking there, but most likely following his dad, like father and son. The monster begs his creator to listen to him. He tells his story of loneliness. So this part of the novel is narrated by the monster himself, who speaks the same language as Captain Walton and Victor Frankenstein. He tells his miserable story of loneliness. To make us understand his existence, he compares himself to Adam, the first man. Quote, Like Adam, I was apparently united by no link to any other being in existence. But his state was far different from mine in every other respect. He had come forth from the hands of God, a perfect creature, happy and prosperous. Guarded by the special care of his creator, he was allowed to converse with and acquire knowledge from beings of superior nature. But I was wretched, helpless and alone. The monster goes on telling us everything from the beginning. Upon leaving his crib or the lab of Mr. Frankenstein, the monster wanders outside. But unfortunately, everywhere he goes, people run away from him. Everyone treats him differently as if he's a monster. His hideous face and his ginormous size, he stands out like a sore thumb everywhere he goes. But he himself, however, has no idea why everyone flees from him. Finally, he finds a little abandoned building next door to a poor family where he takes refuge. Not only that, he also teaches himself to speak human language by eavesdropping on the family's conversation. The family has no idea they live next door to some monster. He also learns to read from books that he finds in the woods. Now there's a twist. The monster, despite being ostracized by society, tries to be good and helpful. He secretly helps his neighbors by collecting firewood and shoveling snow from their path. But the neighbors have no clue. Things are fine, but then one day everything changes for our poor monster. Curse the invention of the mirror. If I didn't have a mirror, I would be a happier person. Or maybe not, who knows. But self-conscious is certainly a curse. The monster one day stoops over a pool of water and suddenly sees a monster staring at him. He freezes for a moment. He's horrified. Soon it dawns on him that he's not looking at some underwater monster, but he's looking at himself. Quote, I had admired the perfect forms of my cottagers, their grace, beauty, and delicate complexions. But how was I terrified when I viewed myself in a transparent pool? At first I started back, unable to believe that it was indeed I who was reflected in the mirror. And when I became fully convinced that I was in reality the monster that I am, I was filled with bitterest sensations of despondence and mortification. Alas, I did not yet entirely know the fatal effects of these miserable deformity. Instead of going to a cosmetic shop or a Swiss plastic surgeon, he decides to give humans another try. He thinks he knows the neighbor well enough by now, so thinking they might accept him, in his enthusiasm, he enters his neighbor's house and starts talking to the man. 
Things are going really well. The man talks to him as if he's another human. Well, unfortunately, it turns out the man is blind. But when the other family members return, they flee the house like the road runner. Now the monster sees a pattern. People see him and run away. It's all visual. Humans are visual creatures. Now it's time for some nose job or face job or some other jobs. Nope, the monster wants to return to his creator. He wants to ask God some serious questions. Now he's really angry at Victor Frankenstein for making him so hideous. He starts searching for his creator. One day he rescues a baby but the boy's father attacks him thinking the monster is going to kill his son. Now he sees a pattern. No matter how much he tries to be good and helpful, all humans hate him. Now his resentment turns against all humanity. Nietzsche said it, resentment leads to revenge. Time for revenge. It's here that the monster decides to kill Victor's innocent brother. Now that he has found his creator, he wants him to make another one of him, but a female. The monster wants a partner. Everyone needs a mate. In return, the monster promises to leave Europe for South America. Victor Frankenstein sees no other choice because he might lose more of his family members if he doesn't give in to the monster's demand. To make a female version, Victor travels to Scotland. But in his head, he develops anxiety. Yes, he can create a female, but he cannot make her fall in love with the monster. What if Adam and Eve start a fight? Imagine the carnage. But worse still, if they do fall in love, they might breed like bunnies. Imagine the carnage their kids or the kids of their kids might cause. It's enough that humans go to war against each other, but imagine another species that is taller, stronger and more savage. Look what happened to the Neanderthals. When humans took over, they killed the other species of humans. He envisages his invention might cause the end of humanity, an atomic bomb. He scraps his plan thinking he might be safe in Scotland. But guess who shows up? It's the monster who's been following him all along. Not for scotch whiskey, but to make sure the scientist keeps his words. Make me a woman, goddammit. He gives him another warning and leaves the room. Victor is frightened, so he flees towards the sea. In his panic to throw away all his instruments into the water, Victor falls asleep on a boat and drifts towards the coast of Ireland. The Irish police are waiting for him. He is arrested. But for what? It turns out his best friend is dead. So the Irish police charges him for the murder. He knows what happened. The monster has taken revenge on him yet again. He has a mental breakdown now. But this time, no friend to look after him. He is in an Irish prison. Unlike the Swiss justice system, the Irish or the British justice system is pretty good. He is proven innocent, so he takes the first boat back to Switzerland to get married to his love, Elizabeth. But in the back of his mind, he knows the monster is on his heels. Victor prepares himself with a few guns and Swiss army knife, just in case the monster shows up. But at one point, he lets his guards down and gets distracted. Instead of guarding his bride, he goes in search of the monster. Idiot. When he comes back, it's too late. She's already dead. The monster is an incredibly efficient killing machine, like an AK-47. He chases the monster, first in Switzerland, then all over Europe, then Russia, and finally in the North Pole. It sounds really bizarre, but when you have a revenge on your mind, you go mad in your pursuit. Finally, the cold gets to him and he collapses. Here's when Captain Walton rescues him. Now he wants to continue chasing his baby monster. But the weather makes things really hard. So hard that some of Walton's crew perish in the cold. The morale is so low that everyone wants to return home. 
Victor, however, shouts at them to have courage. Victor is my name, goddammit. He tells them to man up. He says men don't seek comfort, men seek hardship. Comfort is not man's business. But Victor's speech fails to motivate the Englishmen, so he decides to continue on his own. He feels it is his responsibility to kill the monster he created. Quote, I feel justified in desiring the death of my adversary. During these last days, I have been occupied in examining my past conduct. Nor do I find it blamable. In a fit of enthusiastic madness, I created a rational creature and was bound towards him to assure as far as I was in my power, his happiness and well-being. This was my duty, but there was another still paramount to that. My duties towards the beings of my own species had greater claims to my attention. But unfortunately, nature is harsher than the monster. Victory, no victory. Dr. Frankenstein dies while pursuing to kill his own invention. A man who gave life to a monster basically sealed his own death. Mary Shelley's mother died soon after giving birth to her. Back then, childbirth was a precarious business. While giving birth, a mother's life was on the line, so to speak. So, Victor Frankenstein, a man, gave birth to a monster that ultimately killed him. Human history is full of ironic twists like that. His last message, as conveyed through Captain Walton, is not to chase your dream and ambition, but you should seek peace and happiness. Dostoevsky has the same message in Crime and Punishment. Raskolnikov's guilt sends him to Siberia. Victor Frankenstein dies in the snow of the North Pole, not too far off. What happens to the monster? He arrives at the scene to see the creator dead. God is dead. Well, it's a heartbreaking moment for him. He decides his only option is to end his own life. Yes, he decides to vanish in the cold of the North Pole and to never return. Nobody ever sees him again. I'm sure Santa knows where he is. Who knows, it might be Santa trying to redeem himself. Men's Obsession Literature is littered with men with obsession. It's either women they are trying to woo or creating a perfect cathedral or a garden or writing a novel. In Tristram Shandy, Uncle Toby's obsession is to create a war scene in his back garden so he might be able to woo the woman he loves. And the great Gatsby, Jay Gatsby, spends years getting rich so he can get the woman he loves. In the animal kingdom, the males tend to obsess over making a nest, den, or a house in order to seduce the female into mating with them. In the novel, Victor Frankenstein and Captain Walton are obsessed with their scientific pursuits, which result in many deaths. I think Mary Shelley was aware of men's obsession as she spent time with two men, her husband, Percy Shelley, and Lord Byron. Both incredibly successful poets and writers, but both died young. Lord Byron died in Greece fighting the Turks, not in the war, but an illness, and Percy Shelley, Mary's husband, died aged 29 when his boat sank and his body was washed ashore 10 days later. It's no surprise that the average woman lives almost 10 years longer than an average man. Men have crazy obsessions that end up killing them. A quote commonly attributed to Charles Bukowski sums it up. Find something you love and let it kill you. It's noteworthy to mention that Mary Shelley and Percy Shelley met under suspicious circumstances. Percy was married at a time and soon after the affair, the first wife was dead, perhaps suicide, and four weeks later the couple married and fled England for Europe. Was there some guilt? Who knows? Dying at a young age wasn't unusual at the time. 
A lot of great poets, explorers, scientists, and inventors would die at a young age, all in pursuit of their dreams, projects, achievements, ambitions, and so forth. Men tend to develop tunnel vision when they have a project they're working on. They neglect everything else. Women, however, are more aware of the environment and social circle. At the heart of Frankenstein is one man's obsession to create a human being. So one way to read the novel is that it is a woman's criticisms of men. Generally speaking, men tend to be rational while women tend to be more emotional. So Frankenstein's monster is the extreme of male rationality that creates monsters. Today, a lot of men spend hours, days, and months on creating their replica railway, model cars, or something else, which often baffles a lot of women. You could say it's in a man's DNA to create something, because with creation, invention, or discovery comes fame, recognition, but most importantly, women. Not every time, though. But that's the secret hope of every man, that they can either monetize their obsession or impress a lady. Women can make babies, so men make machines. At the time when Mary Shelley was writing the novel, thousands of Europeans were scattered all over the world in search of discovering a new land, a new animal or plant species, or whatnot. So Mary Shelley's Victor Frankenstein is not unique in his obsession to create a new creature. If you look at the literature, it's filled with many examples of this obsession, often a warning to tell other men not to ruin their lives in an attempt to invent or discover something. The oldest tale, the Epic of Gilgamesh, is a one man's attempt to find immortality. In Homer's epic, Iliad, it's fame and honor that push these men to their own demise. I should point out that there are also numerous examples of women having similar obsession. A good example is Mary Curie, whose discovery of radium and polonium also caused her own death. But these are exceptions, it's usually men who try to create something. Women give birth, which is perhaps the most important creation ever. Perhaps subconsciously men feel left out, so they compensate by creating a tool or machine or discover something, mostly to push society forward or greatly benefit people, but occasionally with terrible consequences. So Frankenstein is one of the first examples of industrial invention with horrible consequences for its creator and those around him. Now here's the ironic twist. The industrial age is also the age of rationality. We often think of rationality as the opposite of irrationality or dogma or dangerous passion. We associate rationality with predictability, intentionality, and precision. However, since we are also quite irrational, erratic, and emotional animals, one cannot separate rationality from passion. Passion is the main driver of human ingenuity and creativity. Rationality is just a tool in the hands of the human passion. In other words, it's our passion that makes us wake up in the morning and move a mountain. Rationality is just a tool that helps our passion. Arthur Schopenhauer called it will, which we have no control over, and later Nietzsche argued we can channel this will to create great art and music. So rationality doesn't drive human passion, but passion definitely drives rationality. Also, a lot of human discoveries are not the result of rational thought or calculated precision, but often accidental as we stumble upon them. Penicillin is a good example. In 1928, Dr. Alexander Fleming discovered mold on his petri dish, which was stopping the growth of bacteria, which ultimately became the antibiotic we use today. In The Sleepwalkers, A History of Man's Changing Vision of the Universe, Arthur Kostler argues that human science and creativity are often unconscious. 
In other words, since the dawn of human civilization, we have not been fully rational in a week when we have stumbled upon a new scientific breakthrough. So Frankenstein is a great example of pushing science just for the sake of it might have negative consequences. We often think of science as good, but just like rationality, science is neither good or bad. It's just a tool for humans. To give a few examples of many inventors who later tried to rectify or regret their contributions, Alfred Nobel invented dynamite and set up the Nobel Prizes to leave a better legacy than being called the merchant of debt. Albert Einstein regretted pushing for the Manhattan Project that resulted in the invention of the nuclear weapons in the 1940s. Mikhail Kalashnikov, who invented one of the most used rifles in the world, also questioned himself for the guilt it caused him knowing that his invention was responsible for millions of deaths around the world. Now going back to the novel, Mary Shelley lived at the time when modern technology was at its infancy. People generally championed science and reason. In 1799, the Spanish artist Francisco Goya painted one of the most famous paintings, The Sleep of Reason Produces Monsters. The Enlightenment rationality was the spirit of the age or the zeitgeist. However, the Romantics, mostly poets, literary figures, were not buying into the age of rationality. Gothic fiction was one way to counter rationality as it focused on monsters, vampires, but deep down on human passion. This debate between nature and rationality culminated in the philosophy of Nietzsche whose philosophical discourse provided perhaps the most robust critique of the alignment of rationality. Nietzsche defended human passion against reason. In response to Goya's painting, The Sleep of Reasons Produces Monsters, Nietzsche in his book Beyond Good and Evil says this. He who finds with monsters should be careful lest he thereby becomes a monster. In other words, the good guys are very much capable of being the bad guys. Why? Because morality is how society tells a man to behave in a certain way. But deep inside, that man is driven by his passion, not goodness or evil. Passion is neither good or bad, it's what it is. Men's obsession is often fueled by the desire for women, which stems from passion or will. And that obsession is often the force for progress, but sometimes for destruction. I guess Nietzsche also points out that another important human quality, resentment. When you cannot get what you want, you grow angry and resentful, which results in revolutions, rebellions and revenge. Today a growing number of men find themselves alone. We're also in the middle of a global pandemic, so people, especially men, feel a bit lost in the world. So Frankenstein was the reaction of the romantics against the industrial rationality. Today most men find themselves isolated and lonely too. Frankenstein's monster wanted a mate, he didn't get it. So he went on a rampage causing harms. How do you keep peace today? I guess modern technology has become very robust to keep a tap on people to avoid chaos. Just like the volcano on Mount Tambora in Indonesia in 1815 that killed thousands of people all over the world, the novel is a gothic tale of a bleak time about a monster, man-made, rational and scientific, that would cause the same amount of pain and suffering. Volcanoes are the symbol of nature's passion that erupts and this novel depicts the passion of a man that explodes to life. Today we live in a world full of deadly weapons that could annihilate the human species hundred times over. It's the product of our rational mind. So Mary Shelley was warning us that rationality is a tool in the hands of species whose imagination has no bounds. 
Rationality can liberate us from the constraints of nature as well as history and tradition, but it can also destroy us. A small virus can cause chaos, so Frankenstein is a warning to what happens when you utilize rationality to create something destructive. A scientist's desire for women, fame, money, power, glory can sometimes cause terrible consequences. Creating a new weapon, machine, or even virus may allow your career, but it also brings a lot of pain and misery for millions of your fellow beings. 200 years later, we have the same dilemma when it comes to human innovation. Today, some feminists blame men for all the atrocities of history because men only focus on conquering, winning, and competition. You could say that Mary Shelley, the daughter of the founding mother of feminism, Mary Wollstonecraft, takes a good swipe at men for being too rational and not enough in touch with their emotions. Now, why are men rational and less emotional? The simple answer is that men historically acted as security guards for their women. When safety is on the line, you become extremely rational. It was a man's job to safeguard their wife, sisters, and mother. This is still the case in much of the developing world, where the state is weak. In the developed world, the modern state, i.e. the police, has taken over the job of security for everyone, which has liberated a lot of men from their masculine duty. But it has also created a crisis of meaning for some men, as a lot of young men do not know where they stand or where their role is among the sexes. As a result, a lot of women have to step up and become stronger and more dominant. So instead of women toning down male rigidity and rationality, or beauty taming the beast, now women are becoming more rational themselves, as they are wearing men's shoes. When male rationality and female emotions come together, it creates a balance. However, today the trend is that a lot of men and women live independent lives. The gap is growing as higher education is dominated by women. In the UK, 57% of university students are female. In the US, it's about 60%. As women become more educated and most men do not live up to women's expectations. This is based on the theory of hypergamy, which basically means women normally date someone at the same level or a bit higher than them. Women are less likely to marry or even date someone lower than them socioeconomically, financially, or educationally, and even height. Men, however, are less selective when it comes to mating. Perhaps this has to do with the olden time when women relied on men to provide for them and protect them, so a tall man with lots of money and power was a guarantee way of survival for the woman and her children. Now, as the educational and financial gap is growing, only a small percentage of men are able to date the majority of women. This means a lot of women cannot find a long-term mate, and a lot of men do not live up to women's expectations. So the tale of Frankenstein is quite relevant today. The reason the monster turned nasty was his loneliness. He desperately tried to find friends and begged his creator to make him a female mate, but failed. Who knows in the future, we might have the ability to create our own mates. Today's pets and robots and futures dolls mean men and women do not need each other anymore. Oops, this turned too bleak too quickly. To cheer you up, now let me give you a great idea for modern Frankenstein. So it's your turn to write a 21st century Frankenstein about a tiny monster, a virus who escapes a lab, and a scientist chases all the way to the North Pole trying to tame it. Just like a parent, once you have a child, you spend your entire life worrying about them. Are they safe? But most importantly, but for Frankenstein, the question was, is everyone else safe? Thank you for watching.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.